Our fine minds lecturer today is Professor Ian Aronson, an internationally renowned pediatric urologist listed among the best doctors in America. He recently stepped down as head of pediatric urology at the Medical University of South Carolina, but continues with his research and teaching as distinguished university professor and professor emeritus. He is now able to devote more time to his other academic interests, namely the history of Western medicine and the history of art, about which he has lectured internationally. Professor Aronson's lecture today is titled The Practice of Medicine in Ancient Egypt. This lecture examines the contribution to modern Western medicine made by the priests, magicians and practical healers who practiced medicine in ancient Egypt. Thousands of years ago, the forerunners of today's doctors had some anatomical knowledge. They knew the link between pulse and heart, for example, as well as access to a massive pharmacopoeia of drugs. Some of the prescribed cures, such as honey, have proven medicinal uses, whereas others, such as crocodile dung used as a contraceptive, might have done more harm than good. Professor Aronson's lecture will give an overview of ancient Egyptian history and mythology. Drawing on research into medical papyri and what the practice of mummification has shown us, this lecture will illuminate how well the ancient Egyptians understood disease, its origins and its cures. We're going to talk about today the practice of medicine in ancient Egypt. Looking down from the International Space Station as it orbits the Earth, there is no mistaking Egypt in the northeast corner of Africa, a vast expanse of empty yellow desert bisected by a thin green line running north-south of vegetation growing on either side of the River Nile. This scene has really remained unchanged for thousands of years. The Nile was the source of life for the ancient Egyptians, but this depended on the Ethiopian summer rains causing the river to flood, thereby depositing rich silt as far as 15 kilometres beyond either bank. And it was there, close by the river, that almost the entire Egyptian population lived. As well as providing fish, the Nile was also the only transport artery, for there were no roads to speak of, nor any horses. The annual flood was vital to irrigate the crops and ensure an adequate harvest, yet too high a flood would wash away entire villages. At their height, the waters to the east would reach the limestone quarries, allowing for transport of the large blocks of stone needed for the grand building projects, whilst westward the waters reached as far as Giza, where the great pyramids were being built. The river, though, was also a source of danger, harbouring both crocodiles and the bad-tempered hippopotamus, as well as, more insidiously, the freshwater snail, the carrier of the Bilharzia parasite, which still afflicts millions of Egyptians even today. Beyond the Nile, the desert, with its population of poisonous snakes and scorpions, extended for over a thousand kilometres. A natural defence against invasion, it kept Egypt free to develop its own culture for thousands of years. The written record of this culture begins in the Old Kingdom between 2500 and 2000 BC, which saw the invention of hieroglyphs and the construction of the Great Pyramids of Giza, when the population was estimated to be around one million. With the establishment of the New Kingdom around 1500 BC under the pharaohs Totmesis III and Ramses II, the journey to the afterlife commenced in the Valley of the Kings, a vast necropolis on the west bank of the Nile opposite the city of Thebes. By 1000 BC, Egypt was a major power, with a population that had grown to between three and four million people. What do we know about the people themselves? The evidence from mummies indicates they were small by our standards, about five foot two inches for men and four foot ten for women. The mean lifespan was about 35 years, although the range was wide, some living well beyond their 60s. These figures, however, are not necessarily representative of the general population, for it was only the pharaohs, their families and high officials, all of whom lived well, who were mummified. Paintings in the tombs of important individuals often depicted their servants. We might see, for example, men clad only in a kilt, standing at a trough doing laundry, a husband and wife walking behind their oxen tilling the soil or gathering in the cereal harvest, or fishermen casting their nets from their boats on the Nile. 
Provided the summer rains feeding the headwaters of the Nile did not fail, it seems the arable land was capable of producing ample fresh food for the entire population. Among cereals, barley was the main crop, from which beer was also brewed. Among fruits, dates, figs, pomegranates and olives were abundant, as were many varieties of vegetables. Bees were kept for their honey, although this was scarce and expensive. The land supported beef cattle and sheep, which provided milk from which cheese was made, as well as meat. They also kept ducks and geese. Herbs and spices were widely used in the preparation of food, as was salt, which was also used as a preservative. The ancient Egyptians needed little by way of clothing, for the climate was both hot and dry. Just a kilt and sandals, made from leather or papyrus for men, and for women a simple dress of linen derived from the flax plant. By 1000 BC the New Kingdom was in decline and the country experienced a series of invasions, first by the Nubians from the south, followed by the Libyans, the Assyrians and then the Persians from the east. It was though with the colonization of Egypt by Alexander the Great in 332 BC that the country experienced a renaissance under a succession of Ptolemy rulers, culminating in the rule of Cleopatra. Meanwhile, Alexandria, with its great library and medical school, had become an intellectual beacon to the world. The writings of the ancient Egyptians provide a rich record of their day-to-day -day lives, religious beliefs, and how medicine was practiced. The oldest are inscriptions carved into the walls of temples, written on coffins and on the wall of burial chambers or on freestanding stone tablets called steli, although these are mostly of a religious nature. The writing was initially in the form of hieroglyphs, which soon gave way to heretic script, which, although based on the ideogram, could be written more quickly. It is though the many papyri discovered in the 18th and early in the 19th and early 20th century which revealed most about the early Egyptian life. Written horizontally from right to left in heretic script, the flat sheets were then attached together to form a scroll. Yet what has come down to us is probably only a fraction of the papyri that were actually produced, many falling prey to tomb robbers or being burnt as fuel. Many more were probably lost in the fire which destroyed the great library of Alexandria. The scholar Clement, writing in the second century AD, claimed that the library had contained 42 books of human knowledge, of which fully six were devoted to medicine. Alas, these are now all gone. Nonetheless, two major medical papyri have survived, namely the Edwin Smith Papyrus, now in the library of the New York Academy of Medicine, and the Ebers Papyrus, housed in the University of Leipzig. Eight other surviving papyri have also some medical content. Scholars, however, have had to contend with two main problems, namely that they are all, to a greater or lesser extent, incomplete, with gaps disrupting the narrative. Many of the words used have also proved to be difficult to translate. The Edwin Smith Papyrus is named for an American antique dealer who purchased it in 1862 from Mustafa Aga, a merchant in Luxor. Its original source is unknown, but it was probably retrieved from a physician's tomb. Smith knew heretic script and made a tentative translation before passing it on to his daughter who, in 1906, donated it to the New York uh, Library. Although originally in the form of a scroll, it presently comprises 17 sheets. The style of the script dates it to around 1500 BC, although the vocabulary and grammar suggest that it is a copy of an original dating to the Old Kingdom around 2500 BC. This papyrus is a remarkable document in many respects. Firstly, apart from the first two outer pages, it is in remarkably good condition. The text itself, mainly describing 48 individual case histories of trauma, gives a wonderful insight into the thought processes of the author. We discover that the approach to the patient is entirely rational, describing first the problem, then giving a diagnosis, followed by the recommended treatment. Finally, there is the prognosis, which wisely recognizes the limitations of the physician by placing the case into one of three categories, to quote, an ailment I will treat in anticipation of doing good, 
an ailment I will contend, or try to help, and finally an ailment not to be treated because the situation is hopeless. Following each case history is an explanatory paragraph to amplify what went before, thus throwing light on previously untranslatable words. It seems likely the papyrus served as an instructional manual from which medical students even today might profit. The back, or verso, of the papyrus also gives a window into medical thinking of the time, where are found eight magical incantations, as well as a recipe to improve the complexion and another to change an old man into a youth, indicating a preoccupation with the ageing process. Around the same time Edwin Smith made this purchase, he bought a second, even larger papyrus, which he sold a decade later to Georg Ebers, after whom it is now named. It is said to have been found between the legs of a mummy in the necropolis at Thebes. The Ebers papyrus is by far the longest of all the medical papyri, comprising 110 pages. It is also in very good condition. Although containing much of interest, it is somewhat disappointing in that it comprises random medical texts in no clear sequence with many repetitions. Its main focus is on treatment with little on diagnosis, so it is often unclear exactly what the condition is that is being treated. The text starts with three magic spells and then goes on to cover a wide range of topics worms, skin diseases, afflictions of the head, eyes, teeth, tongue and stomach, ulcers, the flow of urine, as well as various swellings. It concludes with another eleven spells. Of particular interest is the amount of text devoted to the metu, that's M-E-T-U, a word which would seem to refer to any long structure in the body, which would include muscles and tendons, but also nerves, arteries and veins. Lumping these all together suggests that the ancient Egyptians had little understanding that these structures served different functions. The text can be dated to around 1500 BC, same time as the Edwin Smith papyrus. There are in addition a number of other papyri named for the present owner or place of discovery of medical interest which are sadly in poor condition. Among these, the Cahoon papyrus, comprising only three pages, is devoted to women's conditions and is memorable for recommending a paste made from crocodile faeces, honey and sour milk to be placed in the vagina there to act as a contraceptive. Perhaps deterrent would be a better word. The Chester Beatty papyrus is notable for its accurate description of migraine, literally half a head, for which the recommended cure was the recital of a specific magical incantation. Of greater scientific interest is the Brooklyn papyrus devoted to the bites of 38 different types of snake, each accurately described for which both physical remedies and magical spells are prescribed in equal measure. Of the 17 papyri found in a wooden box at the bottom of a shaft in the great temple in Thebes dedicated to Ramses II, three are devoted to medical conditions, particularly of children. What exactly did the ancient Egyptians understand about the human body? The embalmers would have had substantial knowledge of anatomy, for they were adept at removing and preserving the lungs, liver, stomach and intestines which they put into canopic jars placed alongside the mummified cadaver in the burial chamber. The heart was left in place, reflecting the special powers it was thought to possess in the afterlife. But the brain was simply removed piecemeal through small perforations made in the ethmoid bone in the roof of the nose and then discarded. The kidneys were also left in place because probably they were simply concealed in the retroperitoneal fat. One would think that the embalmer's knowledge would have been passed on to the healers, but there's little evidence of this other than for their shared skill in bandaging. To gain insight into what healers might have known about anatomy, uh, we find over 60 hieroglyphs which describe external parts of the body, as well as those for vomit, menstrual flow and blood. The concept of masculinity was represented by the symbol for a phallus, with variations for semen and urine. 
Interestingly, there was no corresponding hieroglyph for femininity. But in the medical papyri, we find an even richer anatomical vocabulary. In addition to words for the heart, lungs, spleen, liver, gallbladder, stomach and intestines, are descriptive phrases such as the two vessels to his testicles, meaning the vasa, and those two which are underneath, referring to the testicles themselves. For the uterus, we find the poetic phrase, mother of mankind. In the Edwin Smith papyrus, we find passengers revealing remarkable anatomical insights, particularly regarding the skull, with different words for the frontal, parietal, occipital and temporal bones that make up the cranium. They also had a word, tepau, meaning leather, which suggests they knew of the fibrous septum that separates the two cerebral hemispheres. They knew of the convoluted surface of the brain itself, likening it to the corrugations of copper in a crucible, referring to the slag that forms on the surface of the metal when the crushed ore is heated. When we turn to the Ebers papyrus, we're frustrated by the ubiquitous use of the non-specific metu. Thus we find three metu in each of the limbs, probably referring to the main arteries which divide into two branches as they reach the elbow and knee respectively. Then two metu running down towards the bladder, presumably the ureters, as well as two metu, one left and one right behind the clavicle leading to the lungs, meaning the bronchi. All of these indicate at least a rudimentary knowledge of anatomy. But then, puzzlingly, we find 22 metu linking the heart to the anus. Absolutely baffling. In spite of this knowledge of individual structures, they had little idea how they actually functioned. They did, though, have some insights. For example, they were aware that the pulse, which could be felt at the wrist, was a manifestation of what they called the heart talking. As far as respiration is concerned, we find frequent reference to the breath of life, although usually in a religious context. But in the Ebers papyrus, we find this remarkable passage. As for the breath which enters the nose, it enters into the heart and then the lungs. It is they that give to the entire body. Now substitute the word oxygen for breath, and we can see that in principle they actually got it right. They did, though, recognise that food and drink enters the stomach and passes down to the anus and that vomiting was the reverse of this process. As far as urine was concerned, they believed this was produced by the two metu leading down into the bladder, or ureters. Having no word for kidneys, it seems they were unaware of their existence. They did, though, understand that procreation was the result of sexual intercourse and that the testicles, with their two metu, or vasa, produced semen. Clearly, the ancient Egyptians' understanding of anatomy and physiology was limited, but their understanding of the nature of disease was even more rudimentary. Here, magic played a major role, particularly matters of life and death, reflected in their proclaiming, the breath of life enters the right ear, whilst the breath of death enters the left ear. This notion has come down to us via the Romans in the expression that the right hand is dexterous, whereas the left is sinister. Yet we find signs they were struggling to understand. Although the pathophysiology of heart failure was beyond them, they did recognise that, uh, to quote, the weakened heart does not speak, meaning that the pulse was feeble. Similarly, they recognised that the passage of red urine indicated bleeding into the urinary tract, no doubt caused by invasion of the wall of the bladder by the ever-present bilharzial parasite. Abscesses were well recognised, but were presumed to be a property of tissues themselves rather than caused by an outside organism. But when it came to common everyday occurrences, such as snake bites, scorpion stings or trauma, they were on surer ground. They distinguished between wounds that were simple or gaping, as well as clean or infected. They could also distinguish between different types of bone fractures as well as joints that were dislocated or merely sprained. However, for the large majority of illnesses encountered in ancient Egypt, the cause was both mysterious and magical. Thus, the uttering of magic spells formed an important part of treatment.
How healthy were the Egyptians, and what were the diseases from which they suffered? Overall, they appear to have been well nourished, with the exception of those rare years when the Nile failed to flood. They were free of rickets, thanks to abundant sunshine, and also of both syphilis and bubonic plague, which in later centuries were to ravish much of Europe. Cancer was also rare, thanks to an absence of environmental carcinogens and their relatively short lifespan. The medical papyri reveal that respiratory infections were common, as were vomiting, diarrhoea, constipation and worm infestations. Less obvious, we find reference to the body flooded, presumably meaning edema or dropsy resulting from heart failure, and also to the heart dancing, suggesting a cardiac arrhythmia. Individuals are described with lockjaw from tetanus, paralysis of one side of the body from a stroke, or of the face from inflammation of the facial nerve. Another experienced pain in the left arm and side, probably from a myocardial infarction. Urinary retention as well as incontinence appear to have been common, as well as blindness and deafness. Statues, carvings and tomb paintings also provide evidence of disease or malformations, although here there is an important caveat, namely that artistic conventions of the time dictated the physical attributes of the figures depicted. For example, important men, irrespective of their age, were typically portrayed as youthful and muscular, whereas important women were required to be tall, slim and beautiful. Alternatively, Obesity might be used to convey wealth, and harpists in the court were traditionally depicted as blind, regardless whether or not they could see. Skeletal deformities, on the other hand, might be accurately portrayed. A well-known stella depicts Roma the doorkeeper, with one wasted leg supporting himself on a staff, suggesting he was the victim of polio. Dwarfism appears to have been quite common, with over 200 examples depicted. Dwarfs were in fact highly regarded, being employed as entertainers or personal attendants, as they were thought to have an affinity with the dwarf god Bess. Uniformly they were portrayed with a normal-sized head and torso, but short limbs, as in the celebrated statue of the High Court official Ceneb, suggesting the diagnosis of achondroplasia although again this might simply have been artistic convention. Other images depict men with a bulging scrotum suggesting an inguinal hernia or hydrocele, or breast enlargement presumably the result of hormonal imbalance secondary to infestation of the liver by the Bilharzial parasite. Examination of human remains has provided direct evidence of disease. The poor were sometimes buried simply in the hot, dry sand, which dries the body out, thus preserving it before putrefaction can take place. This goal, though, was thwarted by the subsequent practice of placing the body in a simple coffin to prevent it being eaten by jackals. Mummification, increasingly practiced between 2500 and 1000 BC, was generally reserved for the pharaoh, his family and favoured attendants. The abdominal organs and lungs after removal were preserved, but those surviving have generally been in too poor a condition to yield any useful information, although silicosis has been identified in some as a result of sand inhalation during life. The cadavers themselves, retaining the heart and kidneys and preserved by treatment with various salts, resins and tight bandaging, have yielded interesting findings. The face of Ramesses V revealed scarring, suggesting he had recovered from smallpox. He also had an enlarged but empty scrotum, suggesting this may have contained an inguinal hernia. Traces of tapeworm have been found in an otherwise empty abdominal cavity of another mummy, indicating the owner probably consumed pork, whilst adhesions in an empty chest cavity are most likely the traces of an empyema or tuberculosis. Simple x-rays of mummies have revealed bone fractures, osteoarthritis of the spine and tuberculous collapse of a vertebra causing a typical hunchback deformity, notably in the mummy of the priest of Amun who lived around 1000 BC. The pharaoh's scepter was found to have a club foot. CT scans are very good at detecting traces of calcification, revealing the ova of the Bilharzia parasite in the liver, kidney and bladder 
and a calcified guinea worm in the abdominal wall. They have also revealed calcification in the coronary arteries and aorta, indicating ancient Egyptians also suffered, as we do, from atherosclerosis. Recent antibody studies on small samples of tissue have confirmed that malaria was endemic. The supernatural was a powerful force in Egyptian life, responsible for the movement of the heavenly bodies, as well as the life-giving annual flood of the Nile. It should be no surprise, therefore, that they believed that disease had a supernatural cause, brought on by gods who had been offended, and to reverse this misfortune, who needed to be appeased. As an additional safeguard, gods who were thought to exert a benign influence would also be invoked. Priests, therefore, would play an important part in these endeavours, as would magicians, whose role it was to recite spells and intone incantations. To understand how the gods came to possess such powers, we have to look back to early Egyptian mythology. Among the panoply of gods it is Osiris and Isis, two of the four children of the earth god Jer and the sky goddess Nut, who loom large. Osiris was one of the most revered of all the gods, being the mythical ruler of prehistoric Egypt. The story goes that Osiris was dismembered by his brother Seth, and the pieces thrown into the Nile. They were retrieved and put back together again by his sister Isis. Osiris and Isis became man and wife and produced a child, Horus. Thereafter Isis devoted herself to the protection of her son, and when he was stung by a scorpion, she restored him to health. Seth, not content with the dismemberment of Osiris, now pulls out the eye of Horus, but his sight is restored by the ibis-headed god Thoth. Thus it is Seth, the embodiment of evil, who must at all costs be appeased whenever calamity strikes. Two other gods had a special role in protecting the Egyptians from harm. The first is Bess, a grotesque little dwarf who became enormously popular through his ability to protect mothers at the dangerous time of childbirth, and whose image would be found in numerous households. The second is Terowet, depicted as having a female body with pendulous breasts, but with the head of a hippopotamus, the legs and arms of a lion, and a crocodile's tail. Thus endowed, Terowet would provide protection from a wide range of wild animals. The likeness of these deities might be carved in stone, together with a text attesting to their powers. These stelae might be quite small, just twelve inches high. But the most magnificent stellar of all is housed in the Metropolitan Museum in New York, and is named for the 19th century Austrian prince and statesman Metternich, to whom it was presented by the then ruler of Egypt, Muhammad Ali Pasha. Elaborately carved on dark green stone, standing three foot tall and in almost perfect condition, it was commissioned by the priest Nes Atum around 343 BC. On its front is an image of Horus as a child, standing on a crocodile and flanked by other beasts. All around are hieroglyphs recounting the deeds of the gods, as well as various spells and incantations. On a more personal scale are amulets, small enough to be carried about the person, placed in a baby's crib or at the threshold of a home. These might be carved with the images of animals to be avoided, or parts of the body of particular concern to the wearer. Others might bear the likeness of Bess or Terowet. But the most popular was the Eye of Horus, on occasions fashioned into gold jewellery. So who were the healers to whom the people turned when they were sick? These fell into three categories. The most revered were the priests who, through their special relationship with specific gods, would be sought out for their ability to intercede on the patient's behalf. Then there were the magicians who had the knowledge to recite special spells and intone incantations. But the most numerous were the professional healers, akin to our general practitioners. Among the priests, those serving in the temple of Sekwet the goddess associated with scorpions were especially frequented. Her image would be found on the outside of canopic jars and coffins, thereby protecting the occupants from scorpion skins in the afterlife. The priests of the lion-headed goddess Sekhmet 
another malign deity responsible for calamities, were also sought after, so that she might be appeased and fortune thereby averted. Water, that giver of life in the land almost entirely desert, was particularly revered for its restorative powers as well as an agent for cleansing, both physical and spiritual. Holy water would be poured over the stele inscribed with magical spells, and the water would then be collected and poured over the body of the patient or actually drunk, the better for the spell to achieve its effect. Important though the priests were and their attendant magicians in ameliorating the effects of disease, it was to the legions of practical healers that the population generally first turned to to cure their day-to-day -day ailments. These ranged from revered court physicians to the more humble practitioner in the villages. No doubt they exhibited a range of expertise comparable to the barber surgeons of Europe in the Middle Ages. Until the founding of the medical schools in the Ptolemaic period, such skills as they possessed were handed down from father to son, only the most wealthy having access to the papyri from which they could learn their trade. In the medical papyri, these practical healers or physicians have the letters SWNW of uncertain pronunciation appended after their name, rather like MB or MD today. There was clearly a hierarchy among these practitioners, for some carried an additional suffix indicating rank, for example chief physician, overseer of physicians, yet others would have a suffix indicating their speciality, for example physician abdomen or physician eye or dentist. Undoubtedly the most famous of these physicians was Imhotep, a veritable polymath who was royal chamberlain to the pharaoh Djoser and who lived around 2600 BC. He was also an architect responsible for the famous Steppe Pyramid at Saqqara, the oldest known stone structure in the world. He was renowned as a great scholar, depicted in sculptures seated with a papyrus skull draped over his thighs, as well as a great healer, although nowhere is he actually described as a physician. Yet his fame passed down the generations, culminating in his being deified as son of Tar around 600 BC. Revered by the Greeks, he was identified with Asclepius, and a shrine was built in his honour by Ptolemy III. The world's first undisputed physician was in fact a contemporary of Imhotep's, Hesira, whose tomb has been discovered near the Steppe Pyramid, where he is described as chief of dentists and doctors to Pharaoh Djosa. There is also a record of the first female physician, Pesachet, who practiced around 2000 BC, where she is described as both chief woman physician and overseer of women's physicians, implying there were others. Yet she was the only female physician to appear in any record for the next 2000 years. By far the most vividly portrayed of the ancient physicians was Ankh, court physician to Ankh Nahor, the vizier of Pharaoh Teti. He must have been highly regarded, for his image was carved into the wall of his master's tomb, together with those of some of his patients. Among specialist physicians, there were what today we would call a gastroenterologist, a proctologist specialising in diseases of the rectum and anus, and an inspector of liquids, akin, one supposes, to the European physicians of the 17th and 18th centuries who made their diagnoses by inspecting their patients' urine, and who were disparagingly referred to as piss prophets. The most highly qualified of all physicians was Hefi Shafnacht, who also lived around 2000 BC, and whose titles included Chief of Pharaoh's Physicians, Priest of Sekhmet, as well as Overseer of Magicians. Anyone seeking a consultation with this gentleman would surely have all the bases covered. Egyptian physicians were held in high regard in neighbouring countries. We have a record that Ramesses II sent his chief physician to prepare herbs for the king of the Hittites, that the physician Neb-Amen attended a Syrian prince, and that Pharaoh Amhos II sent his chief ophthalmologist to attend upon Cyrus the Great of Persia. Whether physicians worked entirely alone or had helpers is unclear. For example, there was no reference to any nurses, other than wet nurses who provided breast milk for other women's babies, nor any mention of midwives, although it is difficult to imagine there were not such women who specialised in this type of care. So what were the medications that these physicians prescribed? 
Very few would pass muster today as having any benefit, although no doubt many of their patients felt better through their placebo effect. Their efficacy could also be enhanced by simultaneously reciting magical spells. The choice of medicine was often governed by association. For example, the ground-up shell of an ostrich egg would be given to a patient with a fractured skull. Plants used for medications were widely available, but there is also some evidence that herb gardens may have been cultivated for this purpose. Similarly, most of the minerals used were sourced locally, although some, such as lapis lazuli, used for eye ailments, were imported from Afghanistan. Their rarity was thought to render them especially effective. Procuring some of the more exotic ingredients, such as bile of tortoise or excrement of flies on the wall, mentioned in the Ebers papyrus, would have presented more of a challenge. Physicians prepared their own medications according to detailed formulas in which ratios of ingredients were to be strictly observed. Most medications were taken by mouth, but others were given rectally or applied to the skin. One prescription required the ingredients to be burned so that the smoke produced could enter the vagina, although precisely for what purpose is unclear. A crushed root placed on the head was a popular remedy for headache. It is really excellent a million times, we are assured. Although no Egyptian pharmacopoeia survives, the medical papyri indicate that most medicines were plant-based. Among the fruits we find dates, figs, grapes and pomegranates. Barley was widely used, as were beans of various types, as well as onions and leeks. The lotus, or nymphia water lily, grew freely and was prized for its medicinal properties. The Ebus papyrus specifies the flowers for, to quote, obstruction of the right half of the belly, which must spend the night, together with other ingredients, in beer and then drunk. Interestingly, we now know that both the nymphia flower and root contain four narcotic alkaloids related to morphine, which, when soaked in alcohol, are leached out, the resulting liquid thus effectively calming intestinal colic. Unspecified parts of the willow tree were also prescribed to, quote, to cause the heart to receive bread, presumably meaning it was a cardiac stimulant. The bark does indeed contain salicin, the basis for aspirin, although this has no known effect on the heart. Among spices and herbs, cinnamon and coriander feature prominently, as do a variety of tree resins used for incense and fumigants. Animal products were also used as medicine. Honey features in hundreds of recipes. When taken by mouth, it is doubtful it had any pharmacological effect, but when applied to infected wounds, it is indeed highly effective because of its powerful antibacterial and antifungal properties. It also confers the added benefit of drawing fluid out from inflamed tissues. Milk was frequently used as a vehicle for other ingredients, but human milk from a mother nursing a male infant was thought to have special healing properties. Animal fat was used as a basis for ointments, and freshly killed meat was routinely applied to gaping and bleeding wounds, and it was indeed effective through the blood-clotting factors it contains. Similarly, raw liver, prescribed for a woman who cannot see, could also have been effective by virtue of its stored vitamin A. Other remedies seem quite bizarre. For example, the ground-up placenta of a cat was thought to prevent the hair from turning grey, whereas the droppings of the edu bird were thought to be equally effective. Finally, there were minerals which found their way into numerous concoctions. Among these, natron, essentially common salt mixed with sodium sulphate and carbonate, left behind as a residue when tidal waters evaporated, had, like honey, the property of drawing fluid out of swollen tissues, and was thus also used by the embalmers. Malachite, a green stone, when finely ground into a powder and applied around the eyes, or to burns, could exert an antimicrobial effect by virtue of the copper it contained. Simple ailments such as coughs, colds and sore throat were treated simply, and no doubt effectively, with dates and honey. The ancient Egyptians were obsessed with their bowels. Herodotus, the Greek historian, noted around 450 BC that to quote, Every month for three successive days they purge themselves in the belief that disease may come from the food they eat. 
Indeed, in the medical papyri we find the recurring word wekadu, meaning toxin, which, to quote again, spreads through the metu to the rest of the body. And what did they take to regulate their bowels? Figs and honey. But if these did not work, castor oil, just as we do 4,000 years later. In addition to these physicians who acted as general practitioners, there were also specialists claiming special skills. Curiously, although women with their own special medical problems made up half the population, there was no suffix attached to a healer's name to suggest they specialised in gynaecology. Furthermore, only a few specifically female complaints are listed in the papyri. The vagina coming down, for example, meaning either a discharge or prolapse, for which smearing the feet and calf with mud was recommended. Remedies for cooling the uterus, perhaps referring to dysmenorrhea, and treatments claiming to be a thousand times effective to cure sagging breasts. Several tests for pregnancy are also listed. Interestingly, two of them indeed have a hormonal basis, for example, observing the dilated veins in the skin of the breasts and the property of pregnant urine to accelerate the germination of seeds of barley. Even the bizarre tests of placing an onion in the vagina and detecting its smell in the breath of a pregnant woman has a physiological basis, for the increased vascularity of the vaginal wall favours the absorption of the onion's volatile chemicals into the bloodstream, which are then exhaled. There is surprisingly little on the process of labour other than illustrations purporting to show the magical births of the pharaohs and a woman squatting on a birthing stool. Incantations were offered to induce labour together with placing various seeds, plants, fruits and parts of a tortoise on the woman's abdomen. Eye diseases were very common. Many physicians therefore carried the suffix erty, I-R-T-Y, to their name indicating their special skills in this area. The various afflictions of the eye are well described in the papyri, although the prescribed remedies are often bizarre. Thus we find a reddened eye, a watery eye, for which honey, ochre and goose fat were prescribed, and for a cloudy eye, either from a cataract or a pacification of the cornea, various mixtures were to be applied to the affected eye with the feather of a vulture. These might include bile of a tortoise or even dried infant faeces. For general failing sight or actual blindness, water extracted from a pig's eye was instilled into the ear. The least one can say is that in their efforts it was not for want of trying. Some physicians, including the celebrated Hesira, were also dentists, denoted by the suffix Ibri, I-B-R-Y. The state of dental health in ancient Egypt can easily be assessed from the numerous skulls that survive. The commonest problem was simply wearing down of the crown as a result of eating food prepared with grain contaminated with wind-blown sand. Indeed, the teeth of all mummies which have been x-rayed revealed this phenomenon. By contrast, caries was rare, at least until the first millennium BC when sugar was introduced. Although honey contained sugar, it was expensive, and thus caries in earlier times was confined almost exclusively to members of the royal court. On occasions, caries had progressed to form an abscess in the jaw. Surgery fell within the domain of the general physician, for there was no suffix to designate such a specialist. No surgical instruments have been found, although medical papyri frequently refer to treatment by knife, for which four different words exist, suggesting they possessed a variety of such instruments. A relief carving on the wall of the temple of Komombo dating from the Ptolemaic period, shows instruments arranged on a table which certainly suggests their use in surgery. These include scalpels, hooks, saws, probes, variety of forceps, a sponge, bandages and a storage box. The procedures carried out would of necessity have been very limited and no surgical scars have been identified among thousands of mummies that have been studied. By and large, these would have comprised the incision and drainage of abscesses and the excision of superficial tumours. One such lump was described as a swelling of the fat, which comes and goes under the fingers, characteristic of a lipoma. The value of cautery was also appreciated, for we find the statement, with heated knife treatment the bleeding will not be great. Another patient with what was described as water in his abdomen going up and down, 
presumably ascites, was treated by piercing with a knife to let the fluid out, the equivalent of modern-day paracentesis. There is no mention in any of the papyri of trefanning or making a hole in the bone of the skull, although several mummies have shown such a defect on x-rays. The only surgical procedure to be actually illustrated was circumcision, most famously in the painted relief on the door of the tomb of Ankh-Mahor. We see on the left half of the panel the standing patient being restrained by an attendant grasping his wrists from behind, while seated is a figure, presumably a priest, with an instrument in his hands taking hold of his penis. Above him the hieroglyph reads, Hold him fast, do not let him fall, I am circumcising. The attendant replies, I shall act for your praise. On the right-hand side of the panel, the priest continues with his work, saying, I will make it pleasant. The patient, now looking calm, rests his left hand on the head of the priest, saying, Do it well, so it may be effective. But there is an alternative explanation of the scene, namely that it is actually the priest who has been circumcised. The right-hand panel, showing his pubic hair being shaved as a sign of ritual purity. Is the subject, in fact, the son of Angkor Mohor, undergoing his initiation as a priest? This would explain the puzzle why Angkor Mohor should have ordered such a scene for his tomb in the first place. Circumcision was by no means universally practised, some male mummies having been circumcised but others not. When carried out, it seems to have been done in late puberty. The Ebus Papyrus has a section devoted to burns, for which complicated five-day treatment regimes are prescribed, with the application first of black mud, then sheep dung, then honey, followed by cooked papyrus, red ochre, and finally copper flakes. Although sounding bizarre, the application of mud on the first day would in fact have been soothing, dispersing the heat in the same way that our mothers used calamine lotion on our own inflamed skin, whereas the honey and copper flakes would help keep infection at bay. But just to be sure, the prescription also contains two magic spells to be recited over the patient. Snakes feature prominently in Egyptian mythology and were much feared by the people. Because of their potential seriousness, it was the priests of Sekwet rather than the jobbing physician to whom the victims turned for help. The papyrus details the symptoms according to whether the bite was from a cobra, python, viper or puffadder. The prognosis was determined by the number of days that had passed since the bite occurred. Some, the papyrus states, will live, others can be saved, while yet others will die quickly. Treatment involved three approaches. Firstly, there was local treatment which might include use of the knife and the application of natron or salt to the site, which was then bandaged. But to be useful, this had to be done early. These measures might, in fact, have been effective by limiting the spread of the toxin and drawing it out into the dressing. Then, drugs would be given by mouth, with over a hundred different substances listed, some of which would induce vomiting in an attempt to rid the victim of the venom. Finally, there were twelve incantations which needed to be recited over the patient, most addressing Sequet and Horus directly. Similarly, scorpions engendered much fear in the people, but the papyri are short on any practical guidance for treatment. Crocodiles were also much feared, killing their victims by dragging them under the water and drowning them. Those more fortunate would have their wounds covered first with fresh meat and then honey and bandaged. Among the 48 cases of trauma described in admirable detail in the Edwin Smith papyrus, 24 were of lacerations. When the wound edges were gaping, they would be stitched back together again, for the Egyptians were expert sewers to judge from the large number of copper, silver and gold needles that had been found, each with an eye for the thread. If the honey did not do its job in preventing infection, or the wound came to attention late, it would be deliberately left open so the pus may, may drain, which is standard medical practice today. The Edwin Smith papyrus also reveals the considerable skill the Egyptians had in managing fractures, including those which were compound, comminuted with multiple fragments or impacted, as well as the simple variety. They employed splints, protected with padding, which they bandaged to the limb to prevent movement of the fracture. Similarly, they may well have employed traction to overcome the spasm of the muscles of the thigh in cases of a fractured femur, 
which causes the open ends of the bones to override each other, as evidenced by x-rays of mummies in which the bone is seen to be healing in perfect alignment. A fractured collarbone, a common injury, was also managed much as it would be today by bandaging the padded arm to the chest wall. Injuries to the face and skull were managed with considerable insight, for example knowing that blood issuing from the ear meant a fracture of the base of the skull. Similarly, they knew that the inability of the victim to put his chin on his chest carried a bad prognosis because of meningitis. Less dramatic, but rather more common, bleeding from a fractured nose could be arrested by packing the nostril with strips of linen soaked in oil, rather like Vaseline gauze we use today. The papyrus also explains how to use the index finger of each hand to apply traction to correct a dislocated jaw. A wall painting in the tomb of Ipwi in Deir el-Medina shows a man having a dislocated shoulder corrected by employing the classic cocker manoeuvre we teach medical students today. The Edwin Smith papyrus also reveals an understanding of bony injury may have neurological consequences. In one case, a man described as having a smashed skull was subsequently found to have a partially paralysed leg and foot. A description of quadriplegia following a dislocation of the vertebra of the neck was particularly remarkable for the accurate description of the consequences, for the victim to, quote, did not know his arms or legs, his penis became erect and he dripped urine as a result of paralysis of the bladder, and his abdomen became swollen from a paralytic ileus of the intestines, or, as the papyrus puts it, from his flesh receiving wind, a catastrophe for the poor patient, however poetically described. So in conclusion, how should we assess Egyptian medicine as we look back from our vantage point 4,500 years later? Given their profound ignorance of the true underlying causes of disease, their resort to magic incantations and amulets differs little from the flagellation and religious processions that took place to assuage the effect of plague in Europe in the Middle Ages, or indeed the power of prayer as an aid to healing today. Their discovery, through trial and error of substances that combat infection, and their subsequent routine use is commendable, as was their skill in the management of trauma. Their greatest contribution, however, was the development of a logical evaluation of the patient, starting with taking a history, then carrying out a thorough examination, formulating a diagnosis, and only then prescribing a treatment something today's medical students armed with their iPads and smartphones and the hope these will provide all the answers would do well to go back and study. It is sobering to reflect that as far as effective treatment is concerned, apart from the ethical and holistic approach to medicine advocated by Hippocrates, nothing much of value happened between the writing of the medical papyri and the discovery of bacteria by Louis Pasteur in the middle of the 19th century. There is little doubt in my mind that the ability of the ancient Egyptians to carefully observe their patients and to make logical deductions provided us with the foundations for the medicine we practice today. Hey, you listening? Paul McCartney called him the fifth Beatle. I called him a friend. He was a man that started an invasion into our souls. Who was he? Brian Epstein. Epstein. A play that gives you a window into the private world of Brian Epstein, whose stellar career as Beatles manager made him a household name. Epstein, at the Theatre on the Bay from 6th to the 17th of October. Book now. FMR 101.3